Well, let me pray for us as we get ready to look into the Word. Lord, I pray that um, you would help me to say the things that you want me to say. We've worshipped you now. We've magnified your holy name. We've seen you as big. And I pray now that we would have ears to hear what you want to say to us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. How many of you have ever gotten the chance to study any sort of church history? Can I see your hands? Anybody? Okay. Wow, more than I thought. It's a, it's a fascinating study if you ever get a chance to look into the history of the church. I was able to dive into it some during my college years and then again last year in one of our SOMA classes that we offered here at New Life. It's interesting, what you find in studying the history of the church of Jesus Christ is that it has always faced two struggles, two problems, persecution from without and heresy from within. The church has always been engaged in a battle waged on those two fronts, an external front and an internal front. So on the one hand, there have always been rulers and governments and authorities who have wanted to squelch Christianity or completely snuff out the church and its gospel message. And as a result, the church has endured periods of persecution during its history where it, in some cases, became illegal to practice Christianity. And those dedicated followers of Jesus who continued to practice Christianity anyway, if they were found out, they faced consequences. Anything from social isolation to economic reprisals to, in some cases, being executed for their faith in Christ. But you know what? It's generally agreed that the greater threat to the church's existence and mission is the threat from within, the internal threat. Much more insidious has been the internal threat posed by teachers and preachers who have infiltrated the church at different times in her history and sought to introduce bad theology what we would call heresy. You could view heresy as a kind of spiritual cancer that takes root in a body, and if it's not recognized and dealt with, it can spread and literally suck the life out of that body, and I'm speaking of the body of the church. In those very early years of the church's existence, heresy seeped in primarily from two sources. On the one hand, uh, kind of a, a Judaistic legalism from people who come out of a Jewish background, and then heresy from Greek philosophy. And while the Bible records that many people from both of those backgrounds converted and became Christians, often those new believers would come into their new environment carrying with them some of their old ideas and some of their old notions. And so it was a constant struggle for pastors to be alert to this, to recognize and reject false teaching, false doctrine, and to keep the church's beliefs pure. Now, some good things did come out of this struggle, including the push to finalize the canon of Scripture, the development of some creeds, some early doctrinal creeds as tests of orthodoxy, and also the rise of some passionate defenders of the faith, people who just immersed themselves in the Scriptures and studied it in order to promote true Christianity and expose false teaching. Of course, one of those very first Christian apologists, or sometimes they were called polemicists, was the Apostle Paul. And his letter to the Colossians was written in part to refute a strain of false teaching that had already infected the church as early as 60 A.D. 
And interestingly, he never really names the heresy that he is combating in this letter. Seems to be a mixture of Judaistic legalism and a Greek philosophy known as Gnosticism and also some kind of weird pagan mysticism all rolled into one, all mixed together. And it's interesting to me that rather than offering a point-by-point-by-point rebuttal of that false teaching, Paul rather takes the approach of simply elevating Jesus Christ. He paints a huge picture of Jesus. And so in Colossians, Paul declares in no uncertain terms that Jesus was and is God and that he was also human, that he had a human body. He was the God-man. And Paul contended that Jesus is supreme over everything in all of creation and that those who trust in Jesus are reconciled to God and are also placed in Christ. Would you say that with me? In Christ. And that's an exalted and lofty position that provides for Christians everything they really need, being in Christ. And so with passion and with precision, Paul declares that Jesus is both supreme and sufficient. He's enough. True believers need not look beyond Jesus for some greater experience, but rather look deeper into Jesus and find Jesus to be extremely satisfying to the soul. And so with all that as as the background, let's overview what we're going to see in our passage today. If you have a Bible, turn to Colossians chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 8 through 15. And trust me, what we're looking at today is so relevant for those of us, well, all of us, who live here in the 21st century, as we're going to see shortly. As we walk through this passage together, first we're going to hear a warning. Then we're going to be given a reminder. And then finally, Paul is going to demonstrate how Jesus is enough for his people, that they are full and complete in him. And after we look at all that, I want to bring one particular thing home to us as a congregation this morning, okay? So let's begin with Colossians chapter 2 and verse 8. The warning. See to it. That's an interesting start, huh? See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Do you feel the warning there? Do you feel the concern? What's he saying? He's saying, watch out, be alert. There are forces at work in the world that are actively seeking to lure you away from Jesus Christ. There are human philosophies floating around that sound really, really good and that seem to make sense and that everybody else seems to just take for granted and believe. But the truth is that these human philosophies, he would say, are enslaving, deceiving, empty, earthly, and demonic. That's what elemental spirits refers to. And these human philosophies are decidedly not Christian. If I were to try to summarize the particular human philosophy that Paul was combating here, it would be this. These people were saying, Jesus is not enough. He's fine, but he's not enough. He's not enough to fill up your life with meaning. He's not enough to get you synced up with the divine. He's not enough to give you the the spiritual experience in your heart that your soul really craves. He's good and okay, but you need more. You know something is missing in your experience and you've tried Jesus, but the emptiness is still there. 
You need something more. You need a special experience of acquiring some superior knowledge that will set you up for the rest of your life. That was a teaching known as Gnosticism. And we've been learning a little bit about that. And that's what Paul was combating in this letter. But I want to say to us today that there are forces at work right now in your life that are seeking to lure you away from Jesus and especially lure you away from being satisfied in Jesus Christ. And I'm going to talk about that in a few minutes. In our day, the messengers, the missionaries who are pushing this very alluring philosophy are the pop musicians and the bands and the TV and movie producers and celebrities and actors and gurus and TV talk show hosts and radio personalities. And their message is, hey, come on over here. We got the good stuff over here. Check this out. Buy into what we're selling. This is where it's at. You've tried the rest. Now come over here and try the best. And I think Paul would look at us and say, don't buy in. Don't allow yourself or each other to become captivated by popular human philosophies that are widely accepted and floating around. They will draw you away from being satisfied in Christ with fine-sounding promises, but in the end they will leave you empty because they're not based on truth. So that's the warning that he gives. And then he gives a reminder. He says something that he's already said earlier in this letter. Verse 9. For in him... Who's the him? Jesus Christ. That's right. Jesus. Just say that name with me. Jesus. It's a great name, isn't it? It means Jehovah saves... In Him, in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. We've heard that before, haven't we? And you, verse 10, have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and authority. So I read that and I see the contrast. He just said that human philosophy is empty, but in Jesus you are what? Full. So he's contrasting emptiness and fullness. All the fullness of God resides in Jesus Christ and those who trust in Him can receive from His fullness and be filled up. John said it this way in his book, and from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. And so Paul reminds God's people that when you really have Jesus, you have everything you need. He is fully God and He is fully satisfying. Now, I've met Christians, and I've been through seasons in my own life where it just kind of felt like, yeah, I'm a Christian and everything, and I know Jesus, but I'm not really full. I'm not really satisfied. Ever felt like that or know someone like that? Like, I feel like I need something more still. And you know what I'd say to you if if that's you, if you know someone like that? It's kind of like drinking Big K Cola. You know that cheap... Imitation, off-brand stuff you can get. There's a reason it's 79 cents. You know that, right? <laughs> and, and, you know, when, you, when you're sipping on that stuff, but, but your heart, what you really want is Coke, the stuff that burns all the way down, you know? The real thing, the name-brand stuff. And I think there's an analogy. I think there's, there's a brand of Christianity that many people were, were brought up in or were sold, and it's what they've been sipping on. And, and it's like the big K cola stuff. It just leaves you with this... You know, just kind of tepid, blah. And you think, I want that, I want that name brand stuff. 
There is a name brand Christianity that's the real thing that leaves you satisfied and full. And it's not beyond Jesus. It's not past Jesus. It's deeper into Jesus Christ. This is what Paul wants to say. He makes this little statement. He's the head of all rule and authority. Those are Paul's words for spirit beings. And we're going to see later that the Gnostic teachers were promoting angel worship as part of what they were peddling. And so Paul here again reminds the people that Jesus is superior to angels. He's the head of all rule and authority. Angels aren't going to do it for you. Only the one who made the angels, who is superior to the angels, can do that. That's his point. And so then after giving this warning and then this reminder, Paul intends to demonstrate just how complete Christians are in Christ. That's the idea of the word fullness. Fullness, complete. It's as if he wants to grab each of those Colossian believers by the shoulders and shake them and say, you are complete in Christ. I had half a notion this morning to ask you to do the same thing. Grab the person in front of you by the shoulders and shake them and say, you're complete in Christ. But then I thought better of it. Because I don't want chiropractor visits to come out of church today. But it's that important that Christians get this. Believing this at a deep level is what will fortify you against the slick teaching that is floating around in our culture these days. If you're a true believer today in Jesus, God has done some things for you and in you that are beautiful in their perfection. They are finished works. They're totally complete. And they're not your work for God. They are God's work for you. And nothing can be added to his work to make it better. Amen? So here's what Paul's going to say. Four things. He's going to say our salvation is complete in Christ. Our regeneration is complete in Christ. Our forgiveness is complete in Christ. And our victory is complete in Christ. So let's look at each of these. And as we do, let's rejoice in each of them. First, our salvation is complete in Christ. Look at verse 11. In Him, Jesus, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. Okay, as you can see, we got to go a little bit deeper here if we're going to get this. Are you ready for that? Circle the two words, circumcision and baptism. Notice they appear together here. Circumcision, as you know, was a little surgical procedure performed on every Jewish baby boy at eight days old. And I will spare you the visual diagram and the YouTube video. You can go online if you want to see something like that. Studies have shown that there are indeed some good hygienic reasons for having this procedure done, but that wasn't its primary significance in the Bible. In the Bible, God gave circumcision to Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation, and he gave it to him as a sign. It was to be a sign that marked every Jewish boy as a member of God's covenant people, God's covenant community. And so if you were circumcised, you were a marked man. 
marked by God and for God. That's circumcision. Now, baptism, as you know, was a rite or a ritual that became the identifying mark of a believer under the new covenant. And so whenever someone would repent of their sins and put their complete trust in Christ's atonement, they would go down to the river because they didn't have nice warm baptistries back in the day. They would go down to the river and someone would baptize them. The word means to immerse. And so they would immerse them in water in a special ceremony that pictured the gospel, the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ for our sins. Now, the appearance of these two words, circumcision and baptism, together in these verses have led some through the years to conclude that baptism is the New Testament equivalent to the Old Testament practice of circumcision. And that being the case, infants, little babies born into Christian families should be baptized. Infant baptism. And there are many Christian denominations that do that. They practice infant baptism as a sign, believing that it's a sign of being a member of the new covenant of Christ. And that belief, that practice is called pido-baptism. Don't know if you knew that. Infant baptism, pido-baptism. You say, well, that's intriguing. That's a whole nother sermon for a whole nother day. But what I want us to see right now in these verses, listen, is that Paul is not talking about physical circumcision or physical baptism in these verses. Do you see that the circumcision he talks about is one made, what does it say? Without hands. So he's not talking about a physical circumcision. Not talking about a physical surgery. Now, a couple weeks ago, I just had a little, a little surgery. And uh, don't ask, you do not want to know what that was all about. But the neat thing about it is that my surgeon was a Christian. And just before I went under, he said, could I pray with you? And I thought that was cool. And then I said, could I pray for you? <laughs> and I said, specifically, I would like to pray for your hands. <laughs> and I did. I said, God, bless this man's hands and give him a steady hand as he does his stuff in me. And thank God that God answered prayer and everything worked out good. Well, that was a surgery made with hands. The circumcision Paul talks about here is one without hands. So that means he's talking about a spiritual surgery. A surgery performed by Jesus on his people at the moment of conversion when he cuts away the old obligation to serve our fleshly impulses. Did you know that if you're a Christian today, you do not have to serve your fleshly impulses any longer? Now, this is deep stuff, isn't it? This is spiritual stuff. Don't you love this? This is gospel truth. Spiritual circumcision. And do you see that the baptism that he refers to here has no water in it? He's not talking about water baptism. He says, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him. With who? With Christ. Paul is here talking about a spiritual baptism, what theologians refer to as our union with Christ. We who know Jesus have been immersed in Christ, united with him. We are one with him. Did you know that? One person did, okay. 
This is so important to get. What this means is that because of our union with Christ, spiritually speaking, when he died, we died with him. When he was buried in that tomb, we who are in Christ were buried with him in that tomb. And when he was raised from the dead, we who are in Christ were raised as well. That's our spiritual union with Christ. Now certainly water baptism is a picture of that. That oneness, that union we have with Jesus. But the reality is that Paul is talking here about both circumcision and baptism in a spiritual sense. And using them as pictures or analogies of salvation. I know some of you think, well, I just thought that salvation was about being forgiven of my sins. Well, it certainly is about that, but it is so, so much more than that, isn't it? It is so rich. Paul is saying here to believers in Christ, you are complete in Him. You're full. You're complete. Your salvation is complete because Jesus has done some things in you that you could never do for yourself and they can never be reversed and never be undone. He has performed a complete spiritual circumcision on all of His people, male and female cutting away and severing forever our previous obligation to obey our fleshly instincts. And the Spirit of God has baptized us into Christ, uniting us with Him in a spiritual union so that everything that happened to Him happened spiritually to us as well, including His death, burial, and resurrection. I I read that and I say, wow, you know, what am I going to add to that? Our salvation is complete. Not only that, our regeneration is complete in Christ. Now verse 13 is our memory verse for this week, and I hope you'll go by and pick up your little memory verse card. But let's read verse 13 aloud together. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh... God made alive together with Him. We'll stop there. You know, some people think that Jesus came in order to make good people better. But Paul would say, Jesus did not come to make good people better. He came to make dead people alive. Huge difference. Now, I've been to a lot of funerals in my life, a lot of funerals. Some very precious people have gone home to be with the Lord just recently, as a matter of fact. Family members of people here in our church. And I certainly do not want to make light of that fact, but I I want to talk for a moment about death and dead people in order that we get the point that Paul is trying to make here, okay? Do you know one thing that all dead people have in common? Unresponsiveness. Okay? They don't respond to anything. You can be in a funeral home. You can walk up to that casket where that person is laying there, that corpse is laying there, and you can begin talking to them. Nothing. You you know, if you had the gall to begin poking and pushing around on their dead body, you would get no response. If you did get a response, and you've got a whole other situation entirely on your hands that you're going to have to deal with. 
Dead people are totally unresponsive. And another thing, they cannot resuscitate themselves. Dead people stay dead. They do not have the ability to make themselves alive again. Now listen, Paul declares that in salvation, God makes dead people alive. Do you see that? That's what it says. God made them alive together with him. We're talking about spiritually dead people. People, it says they're dead in what? Trespasses, sins. People whose sin has deadened them to God. They're dead to God. No responsiveness to God. Spirits have no life in them. And by a miracle of God, God infuses His very life into the spirits of those spiritually dead people and He makes them alive. We call that kind of life what? Eternal life. The Greek word is zoe. God's eternal zoe kind of life. He infuses into spiritually dead people and they come alive. Some of you have come alive to God in recent weeks and in recent months. Praise God for that. And now you are responsive to God. God speaks and you hear his voice and you respond to it. The Holy Spirit pokes and prods you and you sense that. You feel that because you're alive. That's a good thing. That's an evidence that you have spiritual life in you. Before, when we were dead to God, nothing. There was no response. But now we hear his voice, we respond to his word, we rise from the tomb of death to follow our living Lord. We are alive. And he did it. That's what it says. He did it. Dead people can't say anything, they can't do anything for themselves. Our regeneration, that's the theological word. Regeneration, being made alive, that's a work of God and it is complete. But that's not all. Third thing Paul wants to get across is that our forgiveness is also complete in Christ. Our forgiveness. The end of verse 13. Having forgiven us some of our trespasses. Is that what it says? A few of them. The really bad ones. No. Having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. This is good stuff. Any of you like to read novels? Any of you like to read legal thrillers like John Grisham type stuff? I'm reading a John Grisham novel right now, uh, one of his more recent ones, I think, called The Confession. And it's about a death row inmate who was convicted of a horrible crime And the judge sentenced him to death by lethal injection. But there's also, there's this pastor in the story who's trying to get a reprieve for this man, who's trying to get a stay of execution for this guy because he has reason to believe that they've convicted the wrong man, that someone else actually committed this horrific crime that this man is on death row slated to be punished for. Now, I'm only about halfway through the book, so I don't know if he's going to be successful or not in his efforts to get this man off the hook. And if you've read the book, do not come and spoil it for me and tell me, okay? I want to find out myself, but I just I don't know what's going to happen to this guy. But here's what I do know about all of humanity. In a sense, all of humanity is on death row. Isn't this true? That's what the Bible tells us. And rightfully so. Because God, the righteous judge of all the earth, gave humanity his holy laws 
And Adam's race has violated and continues to violate those holy laws every day. Trespasses are multiplying. A long list of legal offenses are growing by the minute. Guilt has been established beyond any reasonable doubt. And therefore, condemnation awaits the human race and justice must be served. But, (laughs) but, just as justice is about to run its course, the judge, amazingly, steps out from behind the bench, sheds his judge's robe, and decides to stand in the place of the accused to stand in the place of the condemned ones and have their guilt assigned to himself and he decides out of love that he is willing to serve their sentence in their place so that they can go free. Now that's the gospel, isn't it? That's substitution. That's atonement. That's what it means when he says that he canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Did you know that often in that day, in Paul's day, when a convicted Roman criminal was crucified, they would write out a list of his offenses and then nail it up on the cross behind him so that the onlookers who were witnessing the execution could look up there and read all of his crimes and know why he was being executed. And they did that with Jesus, didn't they? Here we see that in the reckoning of the divine judge, it was not really his sins that got nailed to the cross. It was our sins that got nailed to the cross. For he had no sins of his own. Not his sins, but ours. You know, when you get this at a deep level, you understand that You understand why John Wesley could barely contain himself when he wrote the words to the hymn, And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain, who him to death pursued? Amazing love! How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Thank you, Jesus, for the gospel. Listen, if you are in Christ today, your sins are forgiven. All of them. That's what it says. All of your trespasses. Past, present, and future. The sins you haven't even committed yet. Because when Jesus died on the cross for your sins, all of your sins were future. You hadn't committed any of them. God reckoned it so. All of your sins are forgiven. Your slate is wiped clean. Your forgiveness is complete. All of your sins. Say, what sins? Well, just think of the Ten Commandments for a few moments. Failing to honor God above all else. Forming in your mind inaccurate images of who God is and what He's like. Taking His name in vain. Dishonoring your parents. Failing to keep the Sabbath day holy. Lying, stealing, adultery, hate, murder, greed, coveting what other people have that you don't, and a thousand other sins, all canceled out. All canceled out. Your sin debt paid by someone else who had no sin of his own to pay for. 
Believe it today. It's the word of God. It's the truth. Your forgiveness is complete in Christ. Well, Paul's on a roll here. And there's one more aspect of of believers' completeness in Christ that he wants to revel in. And that's our victory. Verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Our victory in Christ is complete. Now, here's that term again. Rulers and authorities. See that? And again, it refers to spirit beings, this time demonic spirits. And he's saying that on the cross, when Jesus was hanging there, he defanged Satan and his demons. He completely thwarted their plans. How? By using their chief weapon against them. And what is their chief weapon? Death. It's ironic, isn't it? The most lethal weapon in Satan's arsenal against people is death. But listen to what the writer of Hebrews wrote. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise, Jesus, partook of the same things that through death, He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. That's one of the reasons Jesus had to become human so that he could die. God cannot die. So Jesus had to become human so that he could die for humans. And in so doing, he freed all who would believe in him from fear of death. Do you fear death? You know, for the, for the believer, death is really simply just the doorway into the presence of God, isn't it? Into heaven, into being with Jesus, our Savior, into being with our loved ones who knew Jesus. Jesus put Satan to open shame by using his best weapon, death, against him. He defeated death by dying. And so his victory became his people's victory. His win became our win. Listen, your brackets can be shot to heck like mine are. And it doesn't really matter. It doesn't. Because in the greatest contest of all time, the outcome's already been decided. And if you are in Christ, you're already in the winner's circle. His win is our win. His victory is our victory. So take heart. There will be other NCAA tournaments. They come around pretty regularly about this time of year. (laughs) In Christ, you are on the winning team forever. And He did it. Some of you see this, you know, He triumphed over them. And you think, but I still battle Satan, I still battle evil forces. Think of it this way. On Calvary's mountain, the bomb was dropped and the war at that point was for all intents and purposes over. The little skirmishes that we still find ourselves in as we struggle not against flesh and blood but against principalities and powers and rulers of darkness is not a fight. Listen, it's not a fight for victory. It's a fight from victory. Do you know the difference? 
It's not a fight in order to gain victory. The victory has already been won, secured, and sealed. It is a fight from victory meant to purify your soul and your heart and your allegiance to Jesus Christ in this life and to demonstrate the superiority of Jesus over any of his rivals. And so, fellow believers in Jesus who have given your full allegiance to him like I have, I want to look you in the eye and say, you are complete in Christ. Your salvation is complete. You've been made completely alive in Him. Your forgiveness is complete. Your victory is complete. Your regeneration is complete. All of that, and He did it for you. I've been trying to give you every weekend a a preeminence principle as we think about what it means to put Jesus first in our hearts and in our lives. So here's the seventh one for this weekend. Putting Jesus first means embracing our completeness in Christ while rejecting human philosophies that lure us away from Him. For you and for me to put Jesus first in our lives means to embrace our completeness in Christ, to just believe it and rest in it and live out of it. And to continuously be vigilant to reject the prevailing human philosophies that are always present, seeking to lure us away from Jesus and from being satisfied in Jesus. And so as a pastor who loves you, who cares for you, I want to reiterate to us Paul's strong warning. See to it. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. And maybe you hear that and you say, well, can that happen? Is it really possible that you or I could be seduced? That's what the word means. Seduced, kidnapped, and hauled away from Christ by some enticing human philosophy? Can that even happen? Yep. That's why he wrote it. It can happen, and I would submit to you that it has happened to many, many, many people, and likely to some of you. Just as an example, Christian Smith is a sociologist who is now at Notre Dame, but a few years ago he was at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And he had a research team, and together they embarked upon a project, a very intriguing study of the faith and religious beliefs of teenagers in America. They conducted 3,000, over 3,000 interviews of American teens. And then they collected and analyzed all of the data. And I'm so grateful that in our church, so many of our teens are bucking this trend. You really are, and I, I, I praise God for that. But I want you to understand what your peers believe. Smith and his team made a very startling conclusion. Regardless of whether teenagers came from church-going families, evangelical families, or had very little church background at all, their views about God were surprisingly similar. He described their collective philosophy by introducing a new term, moralistic, therapeutic deism. How many of you have never heard that phrase before in your life? Okay, most of you. New, new term, new phrase. This, this is the phrase these researchers use to describe 
what's rattling around in the minds of American teens in general, at least those that they surveyed, you say, what in the world is moralistic therapeutic deism? Well, you can Google it and find out a little bit more on your own, but let me see if I can describe it for you according to the researchers. Moralistic. Moralistic. The teens they interviewed basically said things like this. Well, yeah, there's a God. I believe in, in the God who exists and kind of, kind of watches over things. This God that I believe in is primarily concerned that people behave. And especially that they be nice. Because he's nice and he wants people to be nice and try to be good. And those who are will end up going to heaven. Moralistic. Therapeutic. We know what that is, right? The prevailing view is that God, this God, is kind of the big therapist in the sky. Who is, who exists to help people who are struggling have peace of mind. Since the central goal of life is to be happy and feel good about yourself, this God exists primarily to help people have peace of mind and help them solve their problems and help them provide a treatment plan for whatever ails them. He's a cosmic therapist. Moralistic, therapeutic deism. We know what deism is, right? That belief that God kind of created everything and then stepped back and kind of lets it pretty much run. This God does not need to be particularly involved in people's lives except when he is needed to help or solve a problem. Most of the time, this God keeps a safe distance and he doesn't get too involved, in spe- especially in matters where people don't want him involved. This God is undemanding. He's non-judgmental. He's mostly interested in making people happy. The researchers say this, In short, this God is something like a combination of a divine butler and a cosmic therapist who is always on call to take care of any problems that arise and help people feel better about themselves. And I ask, is that God? Where is... God's holiness, where is his wrath, where is his justice, where is his grace, where is Jesus, where is the cross, where is propitiation and redemption and reconciliation, where are all of those things in the minds of our culture? Are they all just assumed? You know what I've learned? Never assume the gospel. Never. Dr. Al Mohler is the president of Southern Theological Seminary in Louisville, and he he read the results of this study by Christian Smith, and he commented on this trend. He wrote this, All of this means that these teens have been listening carefully. They've been observing their parents in the larger culture. They understand just how little their parents really believe and just how much many of their churches have accommodated themselves to the dominant culture. They sense the degree to which theological conviction has been sacrificed on the altar of individualism and relativism. Do you know what those things are? I hope so, because they are, they rule the day in the, in the West. They have learned from their elders that self-improvement is the one great moral imperative to which we are all accountable, and they have observed that the highest aspiration of those who shape this culture is to find happiness, security, and meaning in life. 
Basically, the conclusion of the researchers was that this is not just teenagers. This is the whole culture. This is what people believe about God. Yeah, there's a supreme being of some sort. He's kind of watching over everything. He wants us to be good and nice. Good people will go to heaven when they die. He's there. If you get in deep yogurt, you can call on him and hopefully he'll help you out some. Other than that, he's not going to be real involved in your life. Moralistic therapeutic deism is not historic Christianity. It is a deceptive, empty human philosophy of life that needs to be exposed for what it is. It runs counter to a God-centered, gospel-driven worldview, which is what we find in the Scriptures. And so when Paul writes, let's see to it that none of us is taken captive and led away from Christ by vain, empty human philosophy, in our day, he could very well be talking about that, couldn't he? And I know there are some of you in this room, that's your view of God. And it is so not Him. He is so much more than that. We're all susceptible to being kidnapped and carried away from Christ and from satisfaction in Christ. And for that reason, I want to finish with a challenge that I heard a pastor give his congregation recently. He looked out at his people and he said this, you need to be able to identify at least three people in your life from whom you have and can receive correction. And he said, if you can't name three people who can correct you and you'll take it from them, he said, I'm worried about you (laughs) because you are susceptible to being duped. And I want to take that challenge and apply it to us. And you say, well, three is a lot. Well, how about one? Could you or I point to one person in our lives and say, I'm talking about a person who's grounded in God's word, who's rooted and grounded in Jesus Christ, who gets the gospel, who understands the Christian worldview. Someone like that. Is there anyone in your life that you would look at and say, I give you permission. If you should ever see me wandering away or living in such a way that reflects that I've embraced a new philosophy of life, I give you permission to come and correct me. Strongly, firmly, lovingly, I will listen to you. I will not get defensive. I will not blow you off. Please come to me. I believe you need that. I believe I need that. It it, it scares me how deceptive worldly philosophy is. It scares me. I pray each of us will be humble and teachable enough to seek out At least one person like that. You know, that's part of what a Brothers Keeper Church is all about. It's not just about supporting one another in hard times and coming alongside emotionally and praying for one another. It is about that, but it's about more than that. It's about seeing to it that none of us is led astray by empty human philosophies. And so, Lord God, towards that end, I pray. I thank you for your word. I pray I've not said too much. I pray I've not said too little. Lord, I pray that you would humble us and cause us to be teachable enough to invite other people to speak into our lives. That we could have those kinds of loving, accountable relationships, Lord. And it frightens some of, some of us to even think about that. Because in our culture, we're so individualistic. But Lord, you've called us into community. 
Give us the courage and strength to seek out and approach someone who could be like a safeguard for us in this area, Lord. I also want to thank you for those who have been coming alive to you recently through your glorious gospel, responding to you now, listening to you, alive to you. Keep bringing people to faith in Jesus Christ and transforming their lives, Lord. Thank you that our salvation is complete, our forgiveness, our regeneration, our victory. It's all complete. You did it. May we rest in that and rejoice in that. And Lord, even now, may we we respond to the teaching of your word in the way you'd have us to. I pray in Jesus' precious name.